Well, good afternoon. I'm Alec Hogg, and as you can see, David Spear. Arms folded, David. You know that's too bad. Interested? You're blocking out the rest of the world. Not open-minded and anything but what you are. We know that. But David, uh, let's let's just play a little bit of a little signature tune, so we, so that everybody knows this is rational radio. <laughs> Well, that tells you that you are with Rational Radio. I'm Alec Hogg, and with me, as always, a Monday at noon. Well, not as always, because we missed out last week uh, because of the public holiday, but David, David very good to to have you in the studio, as uh, as we call it nowadays. I suppose this is the closest we're going to get to a studio uh, with the uh, COVID-19, even at level two. Uh, it's still going to be at home for you for a while. For me? Yeah, simply because of my age. You know, I've, been, I've been sent home and staying. I'm still worried about the risks, but uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm just so glad that things are starting to open up. I always monitor the traffic on Call It Drive. And, of course, today it's, uh, you know, it's, it's starting to get a lot busier than it was. So you can see the activity uh, building up. And that's good for the economy. You know, that's 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 really we've got to get to that point where, uh, you know, where, where, where we get back to working and where the economy gets back to working. Yeah. Well, as you can see, we are going to hear from Nick Hudson uh, from Panda a little later. So he'll be able to tell you whether you are right to be fearful about COVID-19. We've also got Pete Fulion, Dave Willem and Corky Koeman. So really some very experienced, uh, very, very uh, insightful investment minds coming up in the next hour but before we go there Stuart uh, Lohman our general manager is looking after the tech Stuart you want to just uh, let us know how we should be handling uh, all of this and make sure everybody actually can hear us excellent thanks Alec, and as always welcome David uh, just quickly for those new and those old to the webinar there's a little high five button on the control panel on the right hand side if you can see Alec and David and hear my voice please give us a high five so that we do know we're coming through loud and clear. If the sound is a bit soft, Alec does have the ability to raise his voice as well, this volume level, sorry, not his voice. Excellent. <laughs> Alec, we've got some high fives there. <laughs> That's good. Um, and as Alec says, it's, we always like to keep it conversational. On that same control panel, there's a little questions drop-down menu. If you put your questions in there, Alec can pass them on to the relevant guests at the time. But all good this side, Alec. Enjoy. All right, so I've just raised my voice a little uh, by um, touching on the mixer here. David, I think your voice is also going to be a little louder. Also, to remind you, as Stuart just said, you can pose questions. Please do so as soon as uh, as possible. Well, let's, uh, let's kick off with um, uh, the first of our questions or of our graphs for today, Dave, and that's MTN, which I've now put on screen. I, I love looking at the weekend AFT. Because they give you the top five stocks in the world performance. And MTN last week was the second best performer of all 500 shares in the world, better even than Tesla, <laughs> which is uh, up by 17%. What's 
I, I just think, uh, number one, they're selling out of the Middle East. Um, so there's, they're raising a huge amount of money, which they're going to plow back into services. So uh, into, you know, into improving the quality of the service. They talk about 5G. But the other point is that they're also trying to enhance the services, which I think most mobile companies have to do. You can't rely on selling data at very low margins and you can't rely on voice anymore. So you've now got to start improving the quality of business that you, you know, that you uh, uh, offer. Uh, one of which is payment. Payment is very big, um, especially in Africa. And the other is going to be other kinds of services, like whether it's music, whether it's streaming, whatever it is. So they're coming off a base. Uh, you know, they're coming off a very low base. But Alec, I love that chart because that's what I've been saying to you. We've moved from that very low level in April and we're now hitting that. I, I think that must be your 200-day moving average or whatever it is. And if it can penetrate that... 14 days now. Sorry, it's oh, only 14 days. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying if it can penetrate that, then you're going to see a lot more uh, activity. I, I had that level at about 80 Rand. So, you know, talking to people about NT and I'm saying it's uh, we're hitting an important uh, resistance level. We've got to get through that now for, for further gains. But it looks markets are moving in that direction, Alec. You know, there's no stopping markets at the moment. Wherever we look, uh, there's no suggestion that, uh, you know, there's a big downturn coming. If anything, it looks more inclined to go up. We're going to talk to Pitbull Yun in a little while, who's going to tell us why South African stocks are offering value. This might be one that he'll be looking at. When we, when we go um, a little broader uh, on the market, we've got announcements out of Sassel. Now, this is... A different graph again, because before the program, uh, Stuart will, will confirm that David was showing us his textbook from the 1970s. <laughs> Point in fact, <laughs> James Dyan. James Dyan. Rafi when you need him, hey? Mm. <laughs> but, uh, no, Rafi would have known him. Rafi would know James Dyne because he was one of the original proponents and supporters of point and figure. Now, back in the 70s, you know, when I started in the market in the early 70s, there were no you know, technology. The only computers we had were those that processed accounts, you know, the broker's notes and so on. And all the charts we had to do were in, in noughts and crosses, you know, if it moved up. And it had to move up by a certain point before you could put a cross on and down by a certain amount, you know. So it was very narrow. It wasn't over time. It was on price only. So for true charters, for the purists, they still believe in uh, point and figure charts. So Cocky's coming, Pitt's there. Uh, it might be before their time, but certainly not Cocky. He will remember point and figure charts. <laughs> I remember them well from my auntie, who, as a young reporter, taught me all about technical analysis. She was one of the best in the country. She's a journalist uh, who went on to write a number of books on technical analysis. But uh, we won't we won't use that argument of when technique when you should be following or not. But if you have a look at this, this is a, called a candlestick uh, graph that we got on the, on on here. Now you can get all of these things from wsj.com. You can see on this on Sassel, it's actually moved below uh, that moving average. So I would say watch out. I'm 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 looking on pure fundamentals. I think be careful. 
Um, there's a very thorough presentation today. Uh, you can pick it up on the internet, um, which Sassel have produced, and it's uh, it's it's um, they go through their results. And Alec, this is a debt issue, and um, this is this is what's going to drag down. They did say they for the first time they mentioned that they might have a, a rights issue, but it's only going to come in the second half of the year, which is from January to remember this is their financial year, which ended on the 30th of June. So their big issue is that they've got 170, 180 billion odd rand of debt, most of it, 170 odd billion, which is in dollars. And uh, they've got to work very hard to, uh, you know, to reduce that. They have got their um, asset sale program. They've also, you know, trying to cut costs and get on top of uh, um, other issues. There's also they can generate income. They're very happy if 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 oil remains over forty five dollars a barrel, then it does put them in a fairly good position. But I think they mentioned that uh, you know they could have a rights issue of up to about uh, two billion dollars, but they'll announce that only uh, come January. So I think this is this is a company which has to manage debt. And Alec, the big issue for me is that when you've got debt of this size. It takes away, and, and your focus is to reduce debt. It takes away from expanding the business. In other words, all other projects of expanding your operations uh, become secondary. You know, your focus becomes on reducing debt. So from that point of view, I just uh, take a step backwards and say, you know, it, it's not for me. It's for those who, uh, you know, who are going to take a bet on whether they can overcome debt, which, you know, we'll, we'll only find out in time. So I, I, I'm a bit cautious. When we spoke about Sassel, Dave, you remember very well, the concern was that there were a lot of uh, day traders who were involved in this. Yeah. I'm just trying to get the, the SENS announcement up. Uh, actually should come on screen now. Uh, there we go. Okay. And it's, it, there's lots of detail. If you just go onto the Sassel, that's what I've done here. Uh, takes you there's the Sassel, on the Sassel website. You go to Investor Center, okay, hit Overview, and this is the page that come up, and there you've got Sassel's uh, annual financial results for the year ended 30th of June. Go and read that, and way ahead of everything that uh, that any of the of the reporters are trying to take tomorrow morning. And and uh, we've always believed, David and I, that it's the best thing to do to actually go and do your homework yourself, uh, and and there's a way of doing. Pretty, pretty simple stuff, isn't it, Dave? Absolutely, and you, you know, you get it from the horse's mouth. You know, you've got Fleetwood Krobler uh, giving you an overview, and he tells you exactly what it is. And, and Alec, for for people who are watching this and or listening, um, the best information you get is a website. Now, you have to understand a company cannot release any information to a group of analysts or to anybody without making it available to the public. So the point that I'm making is that if you need information, go to the source, you know, go to the company website, you'll find, you know, there's an incredible array of, of information there and, uh, and the best source because this is, you know, this is from the company. So you can draw your own conclusion and they explain in great detail uh, the debt issue, you know, the debt, uh, sorry, the debt uh, situation, um, um, you know, this morning. So you can make up your own minds about, you know, where they are. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really an underplayed issue is that there's so much financial information now. You have 
quarterly reports uh, on from the US companies which you can download or watch on YouTube. Uh, we've just shown you the Sassel website and there is so much information there. They, they give the presentations that they make to analysts, they will show you that at the website too. But Dave, uh, to, before we, we, uh, we, we close off on this side of the, of the discussion, I wanted to bring you um, up to date with, there go, that's the Sassel, uh, uh, with our hero, Buffett. We've got a lot of Buffettologists in tow today to tell us the story. You, uh, you feature, in fact, on um, one, a little collage that I've got here for the very first year that you went to Shazaway, which was 2007. I know it because I've got my on a, a report done at that stage. So it's a long time that you've been following Buffett very closely. Um, Pit Fulun and Koki uh, Kwame even longer, and we're going to talk to both of them in a moment. But this move of his, he doesn't like mining stocks, he certainly doesn't like gold from and yet he's now a $600 million owner of Barrington Gold Corporation. What do you make? Well, I, for me, it's like when Dylan went from uh, acoustic guitar to electric guitar, you know, guitar, and everyone, you know, there was that famous uh, audience uh, shout, you know, Judas, you know, in other words, he'd gone electric. And and for Buffett to go gold, I just stunning, you know, because he always made that comment, and uh, you can articulate it better about, you know, they dig this from the the bowels of the earth, uh, that you know, they extract gold from the bowels of the earth and then they dig another hole and uh, you know place it in there and watch it and pay people to watch it in other words gold never changes shape a gold you know if you put all the gold that has ever been mined in the world you can get it into a swimming pool I've got all the quotes and suddenly he's buying barrack but uh, I have to say one thing uh, Mark Bristow is great and I like him I heard him the other day and he's not getting carried away with the gold price at these person levels he's very sober he knows what happens to gold and he's He's positioning this mine for a, probably a $1,200, $1,300 mine, uh, gold price. But uh, I'd love to hear what Cookie and Pete have got to say about Warren Buffett and gold. Well, David Shapiro, your wish is my command as we uh, call in Pete for you now. Uh, Pete, if you can just unmute yourself and switch on your, your webcam, uh, we can then find out your views, uh, first of all, on uh, Warren E. Buffett. Pitt was one of the one of hi. the uh, other Pitt. Good to see you, man. Hi, uh, hi Alec. Good to see you too. Hi, David. Just just by way of background, uh, um, <laughs> it was uh, Pitt. When was your very first attendance of the Berkshire Hathaway AGM, Pitt? My first attendance, I think, was the year before we all went. I think it was in 1996. Was the first year I went. Five, nine, five or six. I can't remember. Yeah. 95. Well, we only went in 2006. So you'd been going yeah. for 10 years before, before, yeah. uh, before I David. It, I think it was 96. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what do you make of this move into gold by Warren E. Buffett? Look, I, I think it's interesting. Um, uh, as a percentage of his total assets, it's very small. It's not like he's betting the house on gold at this point. But the fact that he is selling banks, and buying gold does indicate uh, his thinking, and, and, and it's very much sort of in line with the thinking we've developed over the past six months of uh, how and where marks are going, which I think ties in to what you want me to talk about, which is uh, local is lecker. Um, local so, is lecker. 
course, local is lack. I must, I must, I must just yeah. put up your picture there because that's a lacquer picture of a picture you've got long That's a much better one. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a lockdown hairstyle. I see. Uh, yeah, I, I see. David's also got one of those. Low, yeah. low maintenance. Yeah. Well. Well, it's 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 one of those, uh, um, I suppose, small little sacrifices that we play uh, we pay to be at home for as long as we have. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. everyone's now itching to get back into the uh, into the social environment again. Pit, local is lacquer. Why? Why are yeah. you going against the crowd here and and saying that South Africa uh, offers value? So, so I think what, what is happening out there, and, and by the way, I, I, I just need to preface what I'm saying. is South Africa has been cheap for quite a while, um, and it remains cheap. But I think what's happening, that big changes happened, is the global backdrop for financial markets has changed radically over the past six months. So if you think back over the past 10, 15 years, we've had financialization take place. We've had low interest rates, low inflation, and globalization, driven by globalization. Uh, and this has been good for financial assets, and the biggest financial asset is probably the US dollar. It's been good for developed markets. It's been good for large cap growth, high quality businesses. All those sort of assets have done fantastically well in a period of globalization with low growth and low interest rates. Uh, and that was facilitated by central banks effectively funding the acquisition of financial assets. They were printing money and it was going to financial assets, not into product per se. But what's changed now in the past six months, induced by uh, the COVID um, phenomenon, was that fiscal policy has been relaxed tremendously worldwide. Everywhere in the world, governments are running massive budget deficits, massive budget deficits. So on top of what was a very easy monetary environment, we are now a very easy fiscal environment. So that's creating massive money supply growth in the world and the potential for inflation going forward. But now governments sit with a problem. The debt to GDP ratios have gone out of whack completely. South Africa is not alone. In fact, our debt to GDP, albeit high, looks better than a lot of other countries. Uh, but in absolute terms, it's a problem. And everywhere else has this problem. So what do they do? You've got one of two choices. Either you impose austerity measures to get debt levels down again, or you encourage inflation to get nominal growth higher. And if you have higher nominal growth, your debt to GDP number comes down over time because of the higher nominal growth driven by inflation. That's what they did post World War II, and that's what they did in the 70s. Uh, and that seems to be the way governments globally are, are moving. So they're sitting with these huge debt situations, and they need to print money to get themselves out of this. But isn't that isn't that what Buffett's telling us by buying twelve well, billion or ten billion rands worth of of barrack shares, gold and shares. selling banks to fund it and selling banks to fund it? So I think that's exactly what he's saying. So if the global financial environment is actually changing, the things that were doing very well might stop doing well, and you'll have other assets doing well. And what is the opposite of those things that are doing well? I think that's the way we need to think about what's happening in the future. The opposite of financialization is financial repression. It's where governments impose capital controls, trade controls, prescribed assets, all those sort of things to keep capital at home and to fund those deficits. I mean, there's a lot of talk about that sort of thing happening in South Africa. 
it's going to happen everywhere in the world if this is true, if this big change is true. Um, in, the in the environment of higher nominal growth, I think you will find the type of asset that will respond positively towards that would be hard assets, assets that use lots of fixed investments. Sassel might even start doing well at some point. Uh, those sort of assets will do well in a higher inflation, higher nominal growth type environment. Uh, emerging markets will do well. Value stocks will do well. Small caps will do well. All those sort of assets benefit from higher inflation, more liquidity, uh, higher nominal growth. And I think that's the mindset change that I think we are anticipating and um, have implemented our portfolio. So that's, that's a possible outcome. Now, my forecasting is no better. My forecasting ability is no better than anybody else's. Um, so it might not happen, but I think if this sort of thing happens, I think you want a bigger exposure to South African assets than you otherwise would have had. So if your benchmark exposure to South African assets, I think South Africans these days, the benchmark is probably naught, but let's call it a 10 or a 20% exposure to South African assets in your global portfolio. Maybe you want 15 or 25% or 30% even. So I'm saying don't put all your eggs into this one South African basket, but recognize that the world is possibly changing. And as a result of that change, I think so the types of assets that are represented in South Africa might do well. And in the recognition of that, maybe you just want to have a bit more of that. Not everything, but a bit more in that, in that type of asset, specifically South African assets. And, and they are cheap. There's no doubt they are very cheap. Peter, I wanted to just uh, bring up onto the screen in a moment if my uh, if if my um, uh, computer will play ball, which I hope it will uh, momentarily. A something to illustrate and to emphasise what you said a moment ago, which is the way that the Americans have actually been spending money. Now, this is from Kevin yeah. Ling's. A weekly, he puts together some amazing. He's the the chief economist at Stan Lib, and he puts together some fabulous graphs every week. Just a pack of them, maybe about fifteen or twenty. But if you recall, in 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 the budget, our Tito Mbuweni said uh, that we've got this hippo's mouth. Now, we have a look at this. The only way to describe this is a python that is now swallowing a kudu or something, yeah. because <laughs> the number, the, the the mouth is is yeah. huge. The consequence of this is exactly what you outlined a moment ago. And and would it, even though we see zero inflation at the moment, would it be likely then that this is going to lead to higher inflation? I, I think there's a there's a better than 50% chance. Uh, nothing in life is certain. And that's why one runs a portfolio of assets. You don't say, well, this is going to happen. Therefore, I'm going to buy 100% of our portfolio to gold, you run a portfolio that reacts to different types of futures in different ways. So you have assets that respond to whatever happens in the future in different ways. And that makes up a portfolio. But I think given these sort of numbers that you've put up here, and that's not only in the US, it's happening everywhere in the world, with the possible exception of Asia to an extent. Um, this is happening everywhere in the world. Uh, and I think the likelihood of ultimately there being some sort of inflationary uh, signal coming into global economics, I, I think that uh, chance is probably better than 
So let's get back to the point that you made a moment ago about now buying South African shares or at least adding them to your portfolio. Which ones in particular interest you at their current levels? Yeah, yeah. So I think the first the first point of port of call when you want to buy domestically exposed companies, your first port of call is probably banks and retailers, and probably cell phone companies. I mean, those are the those are the companies type of companies that interact with the re, with a retail consumer out there on a day to day basis. They've got big markets they address. Uh, so I'd be looking at the banks. I'd be looking at the shop rights of the world. I'd be looking at the empty ends of the world. Um, something like Discovery, I think, would be up there. Um, uh, those, you know, I would be looking at those sort of businesses. Uh, and of course, if you're willing to do the work, I think there is a surfeit of small companies that are priced extremely cheaply. I mean, you know, the bigger companies I was speaking about now are priced quite cheaply. But if you're looking at the small caps, I mean, some of those stocks are just being given away. Uh, and you know, uh, if you're willing to do the work, there's some really good quality businesses there that are just being given away right now. Give us some ideas, where to start doing our homework there. I've got MTN on the on the screen, and I'd love you to talk yeah. to that. And just 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 some of the small caps that we should be doing our homework on. Okay, so so MTN is uh, I think uh, is cheap. Uh, I think you're basically getting Nigeria for free right here, um, just as it was in the early 2000s when uh, just after it bought Nigeria, it was started the Nigerian business for a long time. The market discounted it completely. And it's doing it again uh, right now for, you know, stocks get cheap because of obvious reasons and there's, there's problems there, but, you know, there's problems everywhere in the world. Uh, so that's that's one. I think if you're looking at the smaller caps, you could do worse than look at something like, um, you know, Bola Metcalf. Uh, half the market cap is in cash or more than half is in cash. The business itself is on a multiple of two or three times. And this is a company that over the long term has generated earnings growth in line with the market. So it's a... It's a with the relative to the JSE, it's an average business and therefore should probably be priced as such. And the PE of the JSE is probably what 14 or 15 at this point in time. So you're getting a business there which is at least an average business for a multiple of two to three times, plus a big cash buffer, no debt at all. It's that sort of business. Um, and there's there are there are quite a few of them out there. Good for you. Uh, just tell us quickly about your merger. Uh, with counterpoint how's that doing yes uh, the merger is uh, is going very well i mean the the, the people uh, in the counterpoint business um, there's a high level resonance with the people in the recm business so we're getting along very well we are like-minded investors and that's always what you want um so it's going well um uh, sam the cio sam huli is a fantastic investor i have a huge amount of respect for him and i enjoy working together with him so no it's going well uh, and i think uh, I think we'll look out for the headlines. I think we're going to see more of this in future because uh, uh, the asset management industry is very much fragmented and I think it needs a bit of consolidation. You just got to find the right partners. Before we let you go, Pete, exactly. Sassel this morning, I know it's it's a little early to, uh, particularly for a long-term investor to to make any mm-hmm. assessment of it, but uh, the, the share price is now starting to, uh, well, it's been a little soft lately. You did mention earlier that maybe Sassel will come back in this new environment. Your thoughts? The only way Sassel can come back in a new environment is if if hard assets go up a lot and uh, or commodities go up a lot. Uh, I mean, oil is obviously a commodity. 
that could stay successful, but otherwise, in the absence of the oil price going up a lot, which is possible, I would say that's a company in big trouble. But stay away. Stay away, yes. Continue to stay away. Continue to stay away. Pete, always good having you on the, uh, having a discussion anyway, and it's really lovely to have you on Rational Radio today. Uh, next up is Dave Woolham, who's going to talk about, um, Dave, if you can unmute yourself. Um, and uh, put your put your screen on. I know that here we go. You you have your your lockdown, uh, not your short hairstyle, like but your lockdown beard. Good to see you, Dave. Where are you talking to us from today? I'm I'm uh, coming from the Midlands. I live down in KZN Midlands, and you know I've been doing the Zoom thing for a while, so I suppose uh, I, I'm not suffering as much as maybe some people are with the you know the constant zooming etc but looking forward to also getting out more and getting to see people well, we're looking forward to coming back to our old stamping ground in the, uh, very very soon now that we're allowed to uh i know we, we are busy looking for uh, a, a pet friendly nice uh, place to come to and maybe maybe not even pet friendly <laughs> given the, the the issues that uh, that that one wants to get out from for a while now i've got something i want to just show you uh before we talk about what we're going to talk about today which is uh, Hewlett. um and i'm going to pick it up on screen in a moment but from from your perspective what got you interested in tongot hewlett in the first place why did you uh, why did you why have you been paying so much interest to this company in this company um Eric, yeah thank you um i guess my what i've been doing since i left the banking industry is managing an investment portfolio and my style is to kind of really go into deep dives on companies that interest me sometimes they lead to a dead end and nothing comes of it but i i feel like my analytical ability and skills gives me something of an edge it's probably the only edge i have um i'm not an economist and probably not as not even close to as experienced as people like pete and cookie so what i do is deep dives and uh, i started to look at tonga and it just didn't feel right um the debt was growing exponentially um i couldn't i just couldn't see how it was that this company that was taking on so much debt didn't have much to show for it so I started looking at the other side, which is the assets and the profits, and it just became clear to me that they were manufacturing or misrepresenting the assets, misrepresenting the um, the profits, and that just became a, a trigger for me to go and do a deep dive. And how long ago was that? I started it in late 2017 sorry 2018 mid mid 2018 sorry i've kind of watched the company for many many years i have a family connection to the company through my in-laws um so the sort of sugar industry is talked about sometimes around the bry or something but i never considered myself an agri specialist but in late 28 mid to late 2018 i started looking at it and it was when they put out their interims for 2018 that i really got concerned did a very deep uh, dive into it, uh, approached the board in, or some of the board members in December, late November, beginning of December 2018, 
and then uh, met with Gavin Hudson eventually uh, in March 2019, just after he arrived. As the, as the new chief executive. And they That's put correct. out financial results yesterday. Uh, in a nutshell, were you pleased with them? I did see that the, 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 the debt has actually increased still further uh, during the, uh, the, the reporting period. And look, I think one has to look at these results in through two lenses. Um, one is sort of strategic lens, looking at what they've done. Bear in mind, this business was, for all intents and, all intents and purposes, insolvent uh, a year ago. Uh, its its liabilities far exceeded its assets. Now, I, I accept that you know there were assets in there that probably have a fair value way higher than the historic cost, but. You know, this business was a year ago was not capable of generating anything like the operating profits to service the debt, and it was in serious, serious trouble. Um, I think that if one looks at what they've done in the last 12 months, I think they've steadied the ship, they've revitalized man the management team, I think they've improved governance on the board. I, I guess I'm a bit frustrated uh, at the lack of progress in calling to account people who should be called to account. Like, I think it's a, it's a universal problem in South Africa. We're just very slow at bringing people to account, auditors, the board, the management, the regulators, everybody who had a say in this. It was so dramatic and so significant and the share price lost 95% of its value very quickly. These results at a financial level, these results don't um, excite me at all, to be honest. Um, I think they try to put a brave face on it. Um, I think I counted up seven different measures of profit when I went through the numbers. And that always worries me and it saddens me. I understand they've got some real complexity with Zimbabwe. IFRS has become, a, I think, a, a significant problem for the average person to understand financials. I think it's, it's the unintended consequences of the complexity of IFRS is that the average person just really can't get a feel for them anymore. And these Tonga results are probably a textbook case of the absurdity of IFRS. So you've got these huge profits that are being shown in the results, but they're profits that come about almost entirely from the, the perverse situation of Zimbabwe with hyperinflation and a currency rate that are disconnected. And so, Zimbabwe actually produced a profit of 2.8 billion, operating profit of 2.8 billion out of the 3.8 billion in this period. But there's no logic that could define that as being real because the currency is collapsing by the day. Um, even since the year end, the currency has moved from 25 to nearly somewhere around 100. That's the Zim dollar to the US dollar. And so you, you can get absolutely no real feel. They have tried to show the impact of the Zim business and their numbers, but to be honest, they really should have just deconsolidated it, at least from a presentational point of view. Because Zimbabwe now offers one thing and one thing only, and that's what are the dividend prospects. And those are very, very low. Um, I can't see much money coming out of Zim. And so it's sitting in the books at an NAV of multiple billions. It's generating profits of multiple billions, and then you have all these weird reversals of currency uh, fluctuations. The average person just gets a headache trying to figure out what's going on. 
What I've put on screen is the is the coggle, or in other words, the mind map of these financial results. And I've got it there so that people can have a look at the way that uh, that we prepare, or certainly I prepare for an interview of this nature. And really, the big thing that jumps out at me on all of this is the uh, the material adverse clause in the sale of the starch assets. Now, I see Business Day this morning was saying that there is a plan B. Well, that was that was discussed in the financial results that were released on Friday, if the transaction should fail. When I last spoke to the CEO, Gavin Hudson, he suggested that uh, it, it, it wasn't going to fail. There was not even a, a, quantum, a, a thought that it wouldn't happen. I think I asked him about it and, and he dismissed that as no, no chance. But if it were to fail, and if there is not another a buyer that's lined up. This company's already growing its debt. The debt uh, increased from, as you'll see on there, from 11.5 billion rands a year ago to 12.5 billion rands at the end of June. If they can't get that 5 billion, uh, which the banks are demanding, because they're demanding that they reduce the, the debt that is owed to them, would they put it into business rescue or indeed into liquidation? And okay, it's a very, it is probably the single most important, uh, certainly, uh, factor right now in the business. Um, the the starch business, um, just just by way of materiality, is made about 600 million in op operating profit, and its uh, net profit for this period was around 400 million. Um, so if you take out starch, you know, it, it decimates the actual underlying profits of the business. They have shown it as a discontinued operation. But, you know, when, on the other hand, the positive is that a 5 billion injection, you know, is a lot of free cash flow that then can be applied to the debt. They've sold the business at about a PE of 12. Um, so one could argue that wasn't a bad price, certainly not in, the, in this environment. But the MAP clause is complicated, and I don't have a full understanding of all the ins and outs of the agreement. But from what I understand now, there was a first and a second MAP clause. And the first MAP clause was related to the period to March 2020, which is now. And probably on that clause, there was not, there was not sufficient grounds for a uh, – because the, the hurdle is 82.5%. In other words, 17.5% reduction in earnings. And, and by all accounts, starch did very, very well in this period, uh, notwithstanding a slightly higher maize price, which increases the input cost. They now have triggered a second MAC clause, which is to the period 2021. Now, that's the really thorny one, because that now covers the period from 1 April through to whenever we normalize. And we know that one of the big inputs from the starch business is the brewing industry and the confectionery industry and many other industries. And I, I just don't know. Um, that will come down to the adjudicator and that's expected on the 21st of September. Yeah, and, and they did say in there that 38% of the offtake from the starch business is in alcohol, uh, alcohol drinks. 38%, yeah. wow. Yeah. Anyway, so you wouldn't be buying the shares now until the 21st of September as an investor, I suppose as a punter, you, know, you, you may, you may uh, go red or black on this side, but if the, if the arbitration comes in Tongat's favor against Barlow's on the sale of the starch business, then you, you might be able to make a case if it goes against them 
And that's really what my question is here. What are the odds of them being able to find another buyer uh, at a similar kind of price range? Right. And it would be speculative to, to guess, but it is a, it's a great business. And I can imagine it would... I was very surprised when Barlow, Barlow World came up as the buyer because, you know, they don't have anything like this. Uh, you know, it's a bolt-on to their business. It's got no synergies or similarities to anything they do now. But there are businesses out there that may well be attractive. This might be an attractive asset. It's a dominant asset. It's a great business. Its 10-year track record is fantastic. So it's been the real jewel in the crown. I would imagine it'd be tough to get anything like this price. But the problem now is they, they've got very strict deadlines on their debt payments. They've, they've allowed them until September 21. But these deals take a long time. And, you know, in this environment, it's, I think it's going to be very, very difficult. Saying that, the banks really control everything now on this stock. And as an equity investor, you're really buying an option on whatever's left over once the banks are happy. Right now, I can't see really much value at all. And even if the deal went through, to be honest, my concern is what's left. You've sold Namibia, you've sold Eswatini, you've sold the starch business, you're left with the loss-making SA sugar business. You've got a great business in Zimbabwe, but it's now been destroyed through the economics of Zimbabwe. Um, and you've got a property business, which really nobody knows what it's worth because it's going to be a function of the economy. So I'm, I'm still struggling to figure out whether there's any value here, but I have to give credit to the management team for putting on a brave face, for putting their heads down, working exceptionally hard in incredibly difficult times and trying their best. They had a really bad hand and they did their best. Dave Willem, it's uh, great to talk with you again uh, from the Midlands of KZN, most beautiful part of our country. We believe so anyway. Um, and uh, and uh, look forward to picking up with you, hopefully with some good news on Tongard. Uh, next up is uh, another gent who we've spoken to fairly often, uh, Nick Hudson. Uh, Nick, I, I think if you could uh, switch on your camera, there we go. Um, I think you're also from our part of the world, aren't you, originally from KwaZulu-Natal? Uh, I'm going to need, we haven't, we're not hearing you, Nick. Um, uh, sorry, there we go, Alec. Good morning. Yeah, I was born in East London. I'm a, I'm a border man, um, okay. but I live in Cape Town, yeah. <laughs> but I think we're all South African at the end of the day. But it's just it's just nice for those uh, those of us from KZN to uh, you know, raise our heads. We've now we're very we're celebrating in uh, in Mark Bristow, of course, uh, the chief executive of Barrick Gold. And I know you've heard a little bit about Warren Buffett deciding to buy gold for the first time in his life. Uh, we put it yes. down to the fact that there's an escort boy now who's actually running the company. But <laughs> you've You've been you've been on the money with Panda. I had an interview, a lovely interview with Magda Wizikcha a little while ago, and she says the only people who've been telling the truth and getting it right is Panda. Uh, I was listening this morning to Franz Cronier from the Institute of Race Relations, and he says the only guys who've been being calling this accurately are Panda. In fact, he said, uh, and it's it's public for their clients. Uh, everybody else has been really should be embarrassed about. Uh, the way that they've been striking out on their projections. Are you happy now that we're starting to get some kind of realization that the facts have changed and that minds need to change as a result? 
Look, yeah, improvement is always good, but it's it's just such a bit of disappointment that uh, it's taken so long. I mean, to be to be fair, both those people, Magda and France, have been supporters from the very beginning. So they they were not people who recently changed their minds. But the um, you know the reality is that we've just destroyed our economy for no good reason, um, and I, I I find it just tragic, um, very sad. Um, Look, the other good news is that the the Western Cape epidemic has gone exactly according to our forecast um, and is now, you know, coronavirus is well on its way out. We're, we're, we're close to functional herd immunity in the, in the Western Cape right now, which means that all of this, all of this stuff should be stopping. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no disaster, basically. You know, we've got a state of disaster, but no disaster. Or, or, or put, it, put it another way, the only disaster in this country is lockdown. What is herd immunity? What is it? What level do we need to get to in South Africa yeah. where we we can believe that we have herd immunity here? So it's a, it's a, it's a, a definitely worth having a little chat about that because there's some misconceptions out there that I keep on hearing time and time again on radio. I read them in the papers and so on. Herd immunity is a concept of the threat a threshold uh, that you reach where there's sufficient people who are um, recovered from the disease and therefore have a level of immunity uh, so that the disease stops circulating and, and just, you know, goes gradually wanes to almost zero. Um, I sent you a curve earlier, I don't know if you want to put it on the screen, uh, Alex, oh, do, did you no. see that? Okay. Um, so, you know, what, what I'm going to show your viewers is the, the Western Cape curve that we set up on the 10th of June. Um, so it's just had its uh, two months, well, it's actually nine weeks now. Um, and uh, it, things have evolved exactly as that curve um, predicted. But you will see there that we're probably down to, I don't know, 25% of the original, of, of the peak levels. So, you know, that means that um, if, you know, 28 days ago, uh, the infections were heavily down from their peak. And in 28 days' time, we'll be, you know, at single-digit numbers. The, the, to all intents and purposes, coronavirus will no longer feature in the Western Cape at all. Um, and, you know, th th that tells you just how drastically expensive the, the, the crazy modelling has been because, you know, I, I heard at the end of last week that the Western Cape has opened another field hospital, which on, under a six-month lease, probably millions of rands, you know, um, and that thing will never be a single patient, you know. Um, it's just not going to be used. Um, so what what the confusion, why there's confusion about this is that elsewhere in the world, so there you have it, okay. The, there, whoops. Okay. <laughs> there is. That should be um, better. Yeah, so you see there, you know, we the point where we were making that estimate is the first really big um, upward blip that you see on the chart, so bef well before the peak, and this chart very accurately forecasts the peak and the and the decline. So all of the, you know, that's right, from where your mouse was, all of that has been evolved since the chart was published. Just, just explain, explain yeah. exactly what the, what the blue line is and then what the orange lines are. So the orange line are your actual deaths, your actual daily deaths, and the blue lines are our forecast uh, confidence intervals. So we said, you know, this is where the disease is going to, uh, the deaths are going to vary between those two lines on a 
on a, a daily basis. And, and is, this a actuarial, is this an actuarial process? I mean, you're an actuary. Is this, is this what you guys no. as actuaries would no, put together? It's so simple. Uh, it's not even really actuarial in any way, shape, or form. It's a, it's a fit of a very simple class of distributions. They only have two parameters, well, three par two functional parameters. Um, and it's just a, a simple statistical distribution. And the credit for this work needs to go to Professor Michael Levitt of Stanford University. He was the one who observed that this class of distributions was fitting the, um, fitting the epidemics worldwide. And so we simply picked that up, confirmed his observation, which was, which was an astonishing one to us, and just set about using them. And it's dead simple. You can do this with the metric and with metric maths and the spreadsheet. So um, when, you, when you have a look forward on the blue line, so the, the blue line you're saying here, uh, it, it predicted that around the 1st of July, it's, is this correct, that you would have, yep. we would have had the peak of, in deaths in South Africa? Yeah, and the bottom blue line had a slightly, that's not South Africa, that's Western Cape. So, and the bottom blue line had a slightly earlier peak. And, and you can see the, the actual peak in the, in the Western Cape, we estimated to be around the 24th or 25th of July. Uh, of, of, yes, of July, sorry. Uh, sorry, what am I saying? June. Of June. June. Over there, around about the, there we go. Okay, at that point there. All right, I think we understand. And, and this has, the line has followed in the Western Cape pretty much what the this curve suggested what about the rest of south africa it's a little bit earlier yeah you can find curves like this on our website there's a on our live data feed that date updated continually for all the major provinces and they, they're also doing fine it's just a little earlier stage you know so the eastern Cape's past its peak probably uh Gauteng is probably past its peak because uh, it's a little, a little way to go still but south africa is past its peak you know um, so the, the thing's on its way out. But, but the point I was getting to, Alec, is that there's this confusion. What happens is all around the world, people have conducted these seroprevalence tests where they, they're looking for antibodies in people's blood to see how many people were actually infected. And they keep on coming up with numbers in the range of, say, 15 to 25%. And textbook herd immunity is thought to be struck at 60 to 70%. But what's being missed here, and the science is now in on this, uh, we, we speculated about this as early as March this year, that the, um, many people who get this disease um, get it out of their systems without even generating antibodies. There are two layers to the human immune system, if, if I can just put it in very simple terms. There's a, a cellular immunity layer, and then there's a, um, humoral immunity layer, and it's that humoral immunity layer that involves antibodies. Cellular immunity um, doesn't, doesn't involve antibodies, and a lot of people just get a topical infection that they deal with at the level of cellular immunity, and they will never test positive on a, for antibodies. And, so, and that, that group of people is large, potentially much bigger than the group of people who develop antibodies. And so you, 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 you're just failing to detect a huge group of infections. You know, that's part one of the story. And then part two is that in the real world, you don't require 60 or 70 percent uh, because people don't move around randomly. You know, they, they have set groups of people who they interact with on a day to day basis. And if you allow for that kind of feature or population interaction, um, then you bring the total level of infection required to, in order to get to herd immunity down by quite a lot. There's another issue as well relating to 
uh, heterogeneity of susceptibility, very big words for basically some people are different. They're not all at, at, at the same risk, you know. So these are the three issues that are going on. The T-cell immunity or, or cellular immunity that is that most people are using to keep the virus or get the virus out of their systems, which involves a very mild disease course. Most of those people will not even, will not even be aware that they were infected. Um, and then, so that's number one. Number two, the heterogeneity of, um, the, of susceptibility. And then number three, the fact that we don't, we don't, we don't move around in Brownian motion. We don't, we don't bump into random people. My chances of bumping into solar imposed are zero, you know. Um, so those are the oh, two factors. With your track record, perhaps you should be bumping into him sometime soon. <laughs> Nick, just to close off with, I had a, a rather irate uh, correspondent who said, having read uh, the Daily Maverick piece, and then they ref referenced the Sunday, uh, sorry, the Financial Times and the New York Times to say that excess deaths in South Africa are pro probably uh, are showing that we're probably undercounting the COVID-19 deaths, uh, and the excess deaths have have risen quite significantly. What's your response to that argument? I, I think some of the excess deaths will be COVID deaths. I'll be surprised if it turns out to be many. I think when we see the age breakdown, you will find that there are lots of deaths in the under 40 category, and that will be a sure, sure, sure sign that we're not talking about coronavirus deaths there. You know, th this disease is just not dangerous in any material way to people under the age of 40. You know, uh, it's a handful of people with, with severe comorbidities and so on are really at risk in that age group. So if there are deaths, especially if they're neonatal deaths, that'll be the giveaway. Neonatal deaths and deaths in women between the ages of 15 and 29 are your are your, your signs that things are going wrong economically, nutrition is going down, circulating communicable diseases are going up. So, yeah, could there be some uh, coronavirus among those excess deaths? Correct, yes, I think there could be. But also remember that there are some non-coronavirus deaths in our official numbers for coronavirus. That's, that's been a feature worldwide. Um, a very interesting study done recently um, uh, of the Swedish nursing homes in a certain part of Sweden found that only 15% of the actual recorded coronavirus deaths had coronavirus as the primary cause of death. As the primary cause, okay. Well, uh, I think what you're telling us is that we need to see the data. We need to see more information before we can, we can make assumptions. And I hope it doesn't take uh, another PIA application. They should just be publishing that right now. There's no reason not to. Hudson, thanks as always for sharing your yes. wisdom with us and your insights with us. Very, very brave uh, at the way you guys at Panda came out. Uh, at went completely against the flow, but as mentioned right at the at the beginning of this interview, uh, you're getting the plaudits from those who matter. So thanks again. We will Thank you, pick Ed. up with no doubt into the future uh, as we uh, finish off today's program with Corky Koiman. Corky, can you uh, switch your 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 webcam on and uh, come and join me here. Hey Alex, I just sent you Corky's number. His IT has blocked go to webinar, so he's unable to, <laughs> to to get in. So I put it on the chat there if you want on WhatsApp. Where he's waiting for your call. Sorry. Right. I'll, I'll give Corky a call in a moment. David Shapiro, I hope you're still with us. I am. I've been. Looking. I'm, 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 I'm here. I switch off, um, I switch off all my, my devices to make sure that I don't uh, uh, I don't don't uh, blame 
uh, bandwidth for a, a problem with the line. So I have a device that's, that I'm now having to switch back. I suppose, you know, it. Uh, fortunately, you and I work in a different environment where our, uh, our systems don't block go to webinar. But, Dave, it's been an interesting conversation. What did you make yeah. of what Pete had no, very interested in what Pitt said. Um, I, he was sober. You know, when I say sober, I thought when he came out and said, you know, South Africa's cheap, local is lecker. But he's, uh, he's taking a very sober approach, you know, 15 to 20%, mainly in banks, financials, and, uh, you know, certain companies around that. I thought he'd be deep value, and I was expecting him to go for Tongart and Nampak and companies like that, you know, whose asset values are almost zero. But I, he, he makes sense. Where what's, what's very interesting is that Buffett is going out of banks. And from my point of view, um, I, I, I was, I did that some time ago, simply that there's no margin to make money. And we're talking in a global sense, um, you know, where, where interest rates are zero or real interest rates, which means, you know, your interest rates, less inflation are actually zero. Uh, it's very, very difficult for banks to, uh, you know, to, to show any kind of earnings. And the only kind of earnings they can make are from trading and hopefully that people go and spend through fees, you know, um, you know through credit card fees and swiping like that. But, yeah. um, you know, his, his very interesting where, where, where I'm making, where I'm looking, you know, when he said look for asset value uh, mm -hmm. and look for hard assets, the one thing that's caught my attention is that the iron ore price is at $120 with a lot of analysts talking it down to below 60 and 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 that's quite widespread and yet that price is held up as well as um as well as copper so look at companies like bulletin and anglos um you know if you look at a chart in bulletin at the moment it's at an all-time high now i think uh or maybe not an all-time high but certainly a recent high on the jc as is anglos so um, I'm much more comfortable looking at BHP and, and looking at some of the diversified miners. They may be going gold and platinum. Well, Koki is indeed uh, with us, or I believe he is. Koki, can you hear me? I am. I am. Uh, I can hear you, Alex. Lovely. Well, we've been talking uh, to a few buffetologists today. Uh, as you heard yeah. David uh, a little earlier, Pitt said that Pitt Fulion said his first uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway AGM was all the way back in 1996. Did you beat? Oh, okay. Were you even earlier? Yeah. No, I, I went with him in 1999, I think was the first one. Now. Okay. So he's, I suppose he's, um, you know, the two of you are kind of the fathers of the Buffett story. And the Buffett story now is buying gold, which which is something that all of us who's read, uh, who've read the annual reports and been at the AGMs are a little surprised at. How are you reading it? I I don't know, <laughs> but if I if you force me to read it, but you are, um, you know the the only thing I can think is obviously he's got uh, two lieutenants Ted and Todd, who running the uh, listed portfolio with him, and obviously he's listening to them. I mean he made a similar move, very unexpected, and against all president when he bought the airline stocks a few years ago, and we said, well, it must have been Ted and Todd who convinced him to do that. Um, and so, yes, it, it doesn't make sense in terms of what he's always believed, 
uh, in terms of buying stocks generally for the long haul, unless he's going back to his youth. And you'll recall when he had his uh, partnership portfolio, he always used to have three buckets. And uh, one was, you know, the turnaround long haul stocks, which, you know, you get involved and, and you agitate for change. He was actually, or well, just didn't wait for change. And, but, the, but one of the buckets was a trading bucket. And ah, it's very, it's a very tough one that why he bought gold, unless he's really taking a view now on a weaker dollar. But that goes against everything he said in his May shareholder meeting. When he said, look, America's great and it will continue to be great. Mm. Could it be, and this is what Pitt was uh, pointing us towards, the coronavirus has seen the uh, US budget deficit or spending just blowing out and uh, income falling through the roof. Uh, we described it as a, uh, as a python trying to swallow a kudu rather than the hippo jaws. Uh, that you had here in in South Africa, uh, referenced by our finance minister, and perhaps yeah. if that's the case, then the only way out of that is to reflate in some way uh, with that kind of level of uh, of government debt. And and what Pitt was saying was that in that case, hard assets, including gold, uh, would be more valuable, and perhaps that's what Buffett's reading. Uh, yes, I mean again, it's against his nature. Or, but, you know, if, if the facts change or the circumstances change, I can change my mind and say, and maybe so should Buffett. Um, yeah, but then also you'd think, but why not rather buy a bulletin or other you know, shares that gives you a, a, a diversified angle? Um, but then if you believe, and, and I think, look, the signs are that the budget deficit is going to blow out and the dollar will weaken it, but that will mean inflation will come back. And that means that the U.S. will have to raise interest rates, the Fed. And, you know, then you might as well own banks uh, because banks are at the moment a very good hedge initially against uh, the long end kicking up because that immediately opens up their, their margin. Um, and you know, so initially, higher rates is very good for your financial sector. But, but he's been buying, he's been selling his banks as well. Uh, although he bought back you know, subsequent to, to 30 June. Um, so it's it's a bit puzzling at the moment. Cookie, I want to just ask you to, to explore a little bit deeper that concept because we've heard today uh, on a few occasions that he's been selling banks and he certainly, Buffett certainly has sold out of Goldman Sachs completely. And by the way, we get this information from the quarterly reports that have to be given to the stock exchange. So, uh, Berkshire Hathaway has to give the New York Stock Exchange its holdings, its list of holdings. In fact, I think it's monthly, isn't it, Corky? Not quarterly. Um, I think it has to give monthly, but only publish quarterly. And and regarding, I think, the Bank of America uh, shares he was buying, he often does get, not often, sorry, he does occasionally get um, permission by the Fed not to disclose public publicly because you know he's saying yeah else the market works against me when it knows that I'm buying mm-hmm. um, but at least quarterly has to disclose his his his, uh, his top holdings yeah but that's a very good point so he sold Wells Fargo which at one point in fact was his biggest share in his portfolio biggest single holding he sold all of Goldman Sachs 
Um, so he's out of that. And he's, yeah. he's, he sold, I think, a quarter yep. of his wealth, Spargo. And then he bought, he bulked up on Bank of America. Now, if you looking at it from the outside, you would say from what Buffett has done, we should be buying Barrick uh, or a gold share and we should be buying Bank of America. Does that make any yeah. sense? <laughs> well, uh, both are actually bets on what I said earlier, uh, uh, inflation trade. That you're saying, okay, so it could be that he had, you know, they've been doing a lot of introspection, and they and they and they said, okay, where are we going to uh, in the U.S. going further now? And saying, okay, inflation is going to start picking up, and then then you buy, you know, banks and well, in that case, Bank of America. And, and gold. Uh, if you look at what he sold, and it's actually it's interesting, Wells, we were always surprised and we were very disappointed when he held on to his wealth stake. And we, we've disliked Wells for a long time. Uh, it, first, it was always too expensive. They were too big. Uh, you know, mortgage was very big in their lives. And then obviously all the incentive problems came. Of which it's mm. absolutely, it, it of which it seems he wasn't aware. Now, I used to always go to U.S. Bancor as one of the banks we've held for quite a while, and they always said to us that once a year, Buffett comes, occasionally Charlie comes along as well, but generally Buffett comes and he sits for the day and he walks through and he has lunch and he, and he picks up. But remember, he's generally his philosophy is not to get involved in companies. He just tries to stay in touch. But be it as it may, they never picked up on Wells. And I think there's been brand damage, uh, considerable brand damage uh, to Wells in terms of what's happened. So I can understand him selling. It's still too expensive in our mind of the problems it's going through. Goldman's, it was never a long-term hold. Remember, he came in 2008. He's always actually liked them. 2008, he rescued them. And so I suppose he'd say, look, um, and now coming back to them, him and Ted and Todd sitting around the table and saying what's happening in the world. and it seems they decided, number one, airlines, the industry has definitely changed. We sell that totally. And going into COVID, they were very overweight banks. I mean, the trade generally was, and I think he had a long-term vision of that, banks have been recapitalized. Um, the, everything was under pressure from here on. It gets better as as world growth you know, just keeps on gradually moving up. Global interest rates start coming back, and that's good for banks. But they went into COVID with a very, very big bank position. So it looks like they then said, okay, we cut out Goldman's. It was never long term. We, we cut our well stake quite considerably, uh, again, for the reasons. The others, it just looks like it took a slice. Bank of New York, PNC, M&T, they took a small slice. The JP Morgan one is interesting because they are in a JV with JP Morgan and Amazon on the whole healthcare initiative, on a whole healthcare um, database system. And Todd is also on the board at JP Morgan. So I'm not sure why he sold JP Morgan to later buy Bank of America. The two are very much the same. We ourselves, Denker, like JP Morgan more than, than uh, Bank of America. Um, but so... In total, he sold about $6.8 billion worth of bank shares in the two, uh, in the quarter. And that puts it into um, perspective because he only bought $600 million worth of gold shares. 
Quite true. Mm. Very important. Subsequently, he's bought now more than two billion worth of Bank of America. We don't know yet if he bought back JP Morgan again, that he actually realized maybe I was stupid. <laughs> but also what you must bear in mind, he bought 5.1 billion Berkshire Hathaway shares. So he sold 6.8 billion banks and bought 5.1 Berkshire Hathaway. So effectively, maybe he was saying, um, I'm, I'm reducing my big position in banks and using that money to buy back my own shares. I, you know, it's the only logic I can come in terms of the numbers. And then subsequent, we'll only know, obviously, end of September, whether he did buy back uh, J.P. Morgan or, or, in fact, kept buying Bank of America. Koki, just to close off with, we also have the South African banks reporting in the next weeks. Are you, yeah. is there anything there that, that we need to be looking out for apart from, I guess they've already told us they've, they're yeah. going to show some bad numbers because of COVID? Yeah, uh, I think what we've got to look out for is their forward looking statement. <laughs> I mean, everything that's going to be reported now, we know. We know the economy contracted. We know, remember, uh, I keep having to explain to people, IFS, IFRS 9 forces banks now to take the big provisions now. So the key is now, are these provisions, have they over-provided while the economy is going down? So a key is going to be where the economy recovers. What is fascinating, if you look at our bank shares compared to any other bank in the world, and by the way, all of them have more or less showed the same results, big increases in provisions, uh, focus on cost cutting, but with globally, banks have all bounced back about 30, 30%, depending on the bank, some 20, some 50. Our banks are still exactly where they were at the end of March. So basically, our market is taking a very dim look, dim view, of the South African economy's ability to grow here after where in the rest of the world, guys are saying, I, I hear what you're saying, big provisions, it will be a non-repeat. Those provisions might not even become bad debts as the economies recover. But here in South Africa, I think you might actually need more provisions. And that's really looking forward what, what our banks are going to have to explain you know, as to what they see in the next six months and 2021. I'm, I'm going to ask Pete Fulian. Pete, uh, if you're still with us, uh, that would again talk to your your thesis uh, that if there is a uh, uh, that South Africa's South African market is taking a very dim view of where we are in this country, um, whereas elsewhere in the world they're looking differently. Would you be considering banks, Pitt? Yes, uh, uh, we hold banks in our funds, uh, and we think the market has. Uh, probably overreacted to their trading statements uh, and results over the past few months. Um, as Koki points out, uh, IFRS uh, forces banks to make bigger provisions than they probably otherwise would have at this point in time. Uh, I can only think that the discussions between the bank executives, management and the auditors would have been lengthy and quite interesting for the fly on the wall. Um, but I do think that, uh, yes, they've been forced to take uh, massive provisions. And I'm not sure that the, the the losses on the loans will turn out to be as high as they're provided for now, but the future will tell. In the meantime, the market has priced the banks as if those losses will realize, will in fact be realized, plus more. Uh, so I'm, I'm willing to take the other side of that. So just to close off with the two of you, um, Koki, what would be your selection of South African banks uh, that you would be 
buying now with the, your expert insights? And, and Peter, I'll ask you the same question in a moment. Yeah, yeah. I think Peter and myself agree that the banks have been totally oversold on, on fears and if those fears don't materialize. So, you know, what we've been doing, we've been adding to first, first round simply that in an uncertain environment, you go for the quality. But at least, at least price that double the price to book of, of NetBank. If, if you really go for value and you say you're going to have a, a, a bigger trade, you go for NetBank. Pete? Yeah, look, uh, I, I think it's much as much as the bank. The big four banks all perform very similarly over the long term. Um, sometimes one does better than the others. I think First Round has by far the best culture and in a bank that is always important. So I think First Round will always be a good choice for most investors. But I think it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you buy. I think you get the exposure you want to assets that are priced on the basis of exaggerated fears. And that can give you a good upside. Well, Pit Falyun, Koki Koiman, thank you for your contributions today. David Shapiro, before we leave, you've only just put your camera back on um, for a second. Uh, just love to get your views on, on what we heard from uh, Pit. And Koki, I'm sure there's a lot of people thinking uh, if these two smart guys are prepared to invest in first rand, which, which is their pick, uh -huh. uh, and maybe Nedbank is a, a swing vote, if you like, uh, then why shouldn't we? No, I, I think in theory, yes. I think in practice, you can wait. And uh, I, you know, I look for signs of a turnaround. You know, when signs come in a market is where you start to get more buyers than sellers. I mean, that sounds so stupid, but it's, it's, it's so true when you watch a market. So when we exhaust ourselves of sellers and the buyers start to get in the ascendancy, that's when you want to come in. So, you know, when you say I'm a chartist, I'm not a chartist, but, but you can look for signs in, in, in price performance. And the one thing that worries me about the banking sector is that it's just been tracking sideways. You know, it's going no, just going nowhere. And there's a, there's a, a, a thing in the markets, you know, where, or a saying in the markets, bottoms are made over time, not on price. So we might be at the right price, but we're still at the bottom. So I'm saying be patient. You know, you've got plenty of time. We don't have to rush in now. Um, but I think in theory, yes, they're looking very, very cheap. But you don't, you know, just, just give it time. Wait for the right signs to emerge that this economy is turning around and people are starting to spend, that businesses are starting to make profits again. And those and those provisions that they made are not real. In other words, they've overprovided. So you can you can you know you can afford you can afford to just sit on the sidelines and decide when to come in. Big question uh, from today's program. Tongot, I'm sure you're not going to go there. Uh, Dave Willem says, "Whoa!" Uh, and if he's, we can probably follow him on that. Uh, banks, you've said, give it time. Both the South African oh. and uh, Bank of America, which would be the pick of buying it, but. What about gold? What about barrack gold? Or what about the South African equivalent, something like Sibania? Well, I think from a trading point of view, they're talking it up. You know? And when everybody talks it up, when the headlines start screaming at you, buy, you can bet that there are, there are many, many people out there going to buy. So I'm not a gold man, I'm, you know, for the reasons that, that we discussed with Buffett, et cetera. You know, to me, you're just producing more. Uh, it's the same as printing money. You know, when you mine more gold, I can never understand the reason for it. But the market wants to buy it. 
<laughs> and when the market wants to buy it, it's going to go up. <laughs> so uh, I'm not going to stand. I'm not going to stand and and uh, you know try stop that train from going down the track. So and I just glanced to the right of me. I looked at the futures because the futures are starting to pick up again. So it still looks like there's plenty of upside uh, in gold. So, yeah, but the one the one warning I must give you, Alec, you know, and to Dave, I don't know if Dave Willem is still listening, etc. The one thing you avoid are things that grow, you know, like forests and sugarcane and even <laughs> even chickens, you know, a little like growing chickens or something like that, because you can never value them. You never know how to value things that grow in the ground. It's the most difficult from an accounting perspective as well. And that's where the Tongard issue came, was, was on valuations and that. So look at the cash book, you know, say, I just want to see your cash book. What money came in, what went out, what's left there? Forget about all the other valuations because accountancy can be very, very misleading. So, yeah, that's one thing you must be careful of, of, of companies like that. Fabulous insights, Dave. Thank you. Uh, and to Dave Woolham, Nick Hudson, Pit Fulun, Koki Koyman, uh, it has been a, a, a particularly useful uh, episode of uh, Rational Radio. Stu, uh, I know we're recording this, and I know we've got a few minutes over, um, but where will the recording be available? Excellent. Thanks, Alec and Dave, for your time as always. Um, Alec, I put the YouTube channel on the chat bar on the control panel on the right-hand side. Um, we obviously publish all the webinars there, but we'll get it up as soon as we can process it our side so that people can have a relook. Brilliant. Thank you very much uh, to Stuart Lerman, our general manager, who looks after mm -hmm. the technicals to make sure that things are all working. And to all of our panelists today, it's uh, from me, Alec Hogg. It has been such a pleasure to be in your company. Look forward to being back with you. Rational Radio next Monday. Remember, we have two other webinars. In fact, three other webinars this week. I've got a uh, a sponsored webinar tomorrow uh, where we have a look at emigrating to the United States through the EB-5 visa. That's um, for investors who want to get into the U.S. And then Wednesday, we have um, Tim Modisa, who's moving to a Wednesday now to do his webinar. And then on a Friday, we have Finance Friday. So uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday are the business webinars. This one only for premium subscribers, the other two for everybody. And then uh, from time to time, we have sponsored webinars and we have one tomorrow at uh, noon as, uh, as we schedule all of them. Thanks again to all of our guests. Thank you for being with us today and look forward to your company again in at the next time. Thanks, maybe even tomorrow. Till then, cheerio. In